Welcome to Travels in a Mathematical World, a podcast from the Institute of Mathematics and its applications, the IMA. My name is Peter Rowlett, this is episode 32. 32 is the number of panels in the spherical polyhedron corresponding to the Archimedean solid, the truncated icosahedron, which is the most popular design of a modern football. Okay, this week on the podcast I went to the University of Nottingham and met with Sarah Shepherd, who is a PhD student there and also edits I Squared magazine, and we talked over some maths news. So this month saw the release of Wolfram Alpha, a computational knowledge engine. So this is the brainchild of the British mathematician and physicist Stephen Wolfram. Uh, basically, it searches through masses of data and calculates answers to the questions that you ask. And it's designed not to be a search engine, it's designed to present you a result to the, uh, an answer to the question that you've asked. Um, and it works very well for some questions and not very well for others. It uses a technique called natural language processing to interpret users' questions. And it was built with Mathematica, which is Wolfram's mathematical software. And this means that it's very good at mathematical calculations in particular. So the BBC have a, a good overview of what it is, and then there's a more detailed piece on the sorts of things you might use it for on the New Scientist website. So I'll put those links in the show notes. There's a piece in The Guardian called Where Does Wolfram Alpha Get Its Information? which is quite interesting, because some of it is from the web, but not all of it is from the web. And if you search, well, if you're me and you search for your name, or the article that I read that in, the person had searched for their name as well, and nothing had come up. Uh, despite us having websites with their names in. Um, but yet, if you search some names, it does come up. So it's obviously got some sort of processing of the information, first of all, and this is, this is sort of quite interesting. Yeah, it seems like uh, most of the data at the moment is um, from the US. So, for example, if you put in a place name in the UK, it might not find it. Yeah, it's very... It's surprisingly not UK-centric. I did a search for... What did I search? 15% of some number of pounds, I don't know, say 47 pounds, 15% of 47 pounds, it didn't find it. 15% of 47, it finds, it knows the answer. And 15% of 47 dollars, it knows the answer. But if you put pounds in there, it doesn't, which is, why, <laughs> why does the unit matter? So then I put 15% of 47 people, and it knows. But if you put 15% of 47 elephants, it gets confused. Yeah, so it's a bit strange what it can and can't do at the moment. It's had quite mixed reviews, hasn't yes. it? I think for some things it, it's useless, but, but for math it seems quite good. Like if I put an integral in, hmm. then it comes up with yeah, the it does a lot of well. Yes, it does a lot of that where you, where you ask it a mathematical question it tells, or you name a function, it tells you about that function. Uh, to a scary extent, I think, for some things, because you can just type in random bits of maths and you get this ton of information out, which is kind of good in some senses and bad if you're trying to teach someone maths, I think. Um, but I remember I saw a piece on the BBC where they asked, uh, I think, a doctor, an A-level student, and Oh, yes, else. I've got that one. Have you got that one? You should probably talk about that then. Yeah, the, the doctor wasn't impressed. Uh, he said, if I get onto my own speciality, it's completely clueless. Uh, the engineer didn't like it either. Uh, he said, almost everything I tried got the message that it didn't understand my question. Uh, the other person they asked was um, an 18-year-old student who's doing A-levels in maths, politics and history. Um, and he seemed to be uh, more keen on it. Um, he said, 
For example, GDP UK Germany gets good results, but GDP UK Germany 2000 to 2008 does not, for some reason. Um, but he said mathematical things seem to work the best, like the volume of a sphere, radius 4.5, or integrate x sine x, or solving a quadratic equation. Mm. But um, Stephen Wolfram says that it's a work in progress at the moment. I think that's right. It's the first look at a new type of software that we haven't seen anything like this before. And the really bad review, why I quite like that review of it, is it was very sober and reflective. And a lot of the reviews are of the order of, if I ask Google, I get a result much quicker. And it isn't a search engine. <laughs> so it can't, it isn't supposed to be the same as yeah, Google. Yeah, I think that's the point. People are comparing it to Google, mm. but um, it's to something completely different. And actually, Google are apparently trying to, apparently working on a similar product called Google Squared. Right, yes. So one week on, there's a blog post by Stephen Wolfram. Um, apparently in the first week online, uh, Wolfram Alpha has received approaching one million queries, and they've received 55,000 feedback messages to their website, which he classifies as suggestions, encouragements, corrections, obvious things, incredibly obscure things. <laughs> but he talks about making the world's knowledge computable, and this is the, the difference between Wolfram Alpha and the search engine, is that you can ask more intelligent questions about the data rather than just fetch me this piece of information. But he does say this is the beginning of a long journey, but it's clear we're going to have a lot of people helping us, and together I believe we can build something quite amazing. And the rest of the blog post has lessons learned from the first weeks and planned for the future. So um, another web tool which was recently released is called Bill Monitor. This is a mobile phone comparison site which allows consumers to find the lowest tariffs. It was actually developed by a team of mathematicians um, and has scientific advisors from Oxford University's Department of Statistics. It's the first site of its kind to be accredited by the communications watchdog Ofcom, and it uses advanced statistics to analyse previous bills and to make tailored recommendations on whether users could save money by switching their mobile phone supplier. It claims to compare over 3 million deals uh, from all the main operators, 302, Orange, T-Mobile and Vodafone. So on their website they explain how it works. This is what they say. Next month you might make a few more calls than usual. If we recommended a plan with just enough free minutes to cover your recent usage, you might get stung with a huge bill. This is where the statistics developed by Bill Monitor's science team come into play. We vary your last three month bill in a precise way, adding a little here, removing a little there, and seeing if the cost changes. If the cost skyrockets for a little more usage on a particular tariff, that tariff gets a lower position in the results. The final cost we display is the average for all the different versions of, the, of your bill. So basically they're using statistics to allow for variation in the usage after they've analysed your previous bills. Uh, it currently only supports pay monthly personal contracts, but they plan to support pay-as-you-go and business tariffs in the future. Okay. It says something about the UK mobile phone market that there are 3 million permutations of options. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I really don't believe that. It just seems to... Yeah, I don't know. That's what it said. <laughs> I actually have quite a lot of people news. Mm -hmm. There was a piece in The Guardian. Um, the Guardian talks to Paul Wilmot, 
who's a financial mathematician who claims to have seen the credit crunch coming and has fairly strong views on who's to blame. <laughs> he sort of, well, he, he, he blames people for following the mathematics without knowing what it means. He said following the formulas was like relying on a seatbelt to drive crazily. <laughs> Quite large. He blames people in risk management, he says, don't, have a fraction of, don't know a fraction of what they should know. He blames government for knowing nothing about the subject, not considering the consequences, not getting advice from consultants, uh, such as him, it's got to be said. He says the FSA uh, can't afford to pay the best people um, and that regulators need to go on derivatives courses so they can ask questions to the banks. Um, anyway, and the rest of the article is sort of an overview of his life and his fairly strong views on some of these subjects. But I thought it was quite interesting to see a sort of profile of a mathematician. And I have heard somebody else speak on a similar topic um, at an IMA conference about the credit crunch and, and how, again, he was predicting that the models were flawed long before the, uh, the crash came. Uh, yeah, it's easy for people to claim after it's happened. Yes. Knew it was going to. The guy I saw at the IMA conference was very keen to say that his slides hadn't changed since. <laughs> it was several months earlier before the thing had happened. But I mean, I think it was. I think there were people who were saying you're misapplying these models or you're interpreting them very optimistically, yeah. but who weren't necessarily at the level where they get any sort of clout in that area. But it's it's interesting because some people want to scapegoat mathematicians in this as being the ones who caused it. So the, there is a new medal for public communication and mathematics, Christopher Zeman Medal, named in honour of Sir Christopher Zeman, um, and the inaugural medal has been awarded to Professor Ian Stewart. The medal is awarded by the Institute of Mathematics and its Applications and the London Mathematical Society, and there's a piece in the Times Higher that talked about this and talked to Ian Stewart about his role in public understanding of mathematics. Uh, he sees a vital role for academics in helping the public understand what goes on behind the closed doors of universities. He said, we need to explain to the public who are perfectly capable of understanding things if we strip out the jargon, the kind of things we're doing. He said, it's not about educating an ignorant public, it's engaging with the public and giving them some understanding with which to build their own argument on what's going on. The medal is going to be awarded at the start of June. On the 15th of May 2009, the Royal Society elected 44 new fellows and 8 foreign members. So the Royal Society is the premier science organisation. Fellows of the Royal Society are highly esteemed. Um, looking through the list, I spotted three in mathematics. John Keating. See, I've done this thing where I put loads of names. <laughs> and I don't know how to pronounce names. And when they're written down, they look fun. John Keating, Bert Tataro, and Yakov Sinai plus three others who are using mathematics. The three who are using mathematics are in planning, database systems, and zoology. Um, but all of their profiles mention significant contributions to mathematical modelling, mathematical understanding. It's nice to see how mathematics is used in different areas. So I have a BBC article which is related to the recent programme Six Degrees of Separation, which was shown on BBC Two in May. It's basically about the theory that between any two people in the world there are no more than six links. So if you choose any two random people, maybe on the other side of the globe, you can connect those people. The first person knows somebody who knows somebody else, who knows somebody else, etc. And you can get to the second person in this way in no more than six steps. 
The BBC programme tested this theory by giving 40 parcels to random people around the world. And they all had to try and get their parcel to a scientist in Boston, Mark Bodell, by giving it to someone they knew. That person would then give it to someone they knew, who might be able to get the parcel closer to the Dow, and so on. In fact, only three out of the 40 parcels got to their final destination, although the BBC claims this is because of the apathy of individuals who failed to send the parcel on. It's an interesting test set. It's a good programme, but you, the theory is that you can connect these people, not necessarily, I think, that those people will know how to connect themselves yeah. in that way. So people were passing it to somebody who they knew who might be going know someone in Boston, but I think there was one where it didn't it arrive in Boston and the chap sent it back to another country to send it to somebody who might know a scientist yeah, in yeah. Boston. The links are not necessarily as obvious as you think, so you might, its use in epidemiology and things like this is not that you can directly plan a route, it's that these routes exist, although you may not be able to find them. So although it was a very nice visual thing for the television, it was probably quite expensive and <laughs> the fact that whether it works or not doesn't necessarily prove anything I think. Well if it works it proves that it works and if it doesn't work it proves that they haven't been able to find Yeah, the, I mean it was just thing. an illustration really. Yeah. Um, but in the programme the mathematicians Stephen Strogatz and Duncan Watts talked about how they studied these so called small world networks using mathematics and how their work led to the development of a new discipline, network science. And network science now has many applications including modelling the World Wide Web and modelling the spread of diseases, such as swine flu. Mm -hmm. The really nice illustration that I remember was the football stadium. Uh, do you remember this? And they were passing yeah. messages around the football stadium. So they had, you tell the person next to you, they tell the person next to you. It takes hundreds of steps before it gets to the person on the other side. But once they gave two people on opposite sides a walkie-talkie, that effectively halves the number of steps before you get to either the person you want to talk to or somebody who's near someone with a walking talk. It made it a lot quicker. It made two groups on either side much more able to communicate with one another yeah. uh, than by passing messages directly. And it was, it was interesting how the idea is how one link, one random link, can really open up connections between whole yeah. groups of people. Yeah. Okay, I saw an article in The New Scientist that was um, interesting about... It's a, it says it's about quantum poker. Okay. <laughs> so um, there's a mathematician uh, is figuring out what will happen to the game of online poker when today's computers are eventually superseded, it says, by quantum computing technology of tomorrow. So basically the article is very interesting because it goes through the basics of quantum computing and game theory and how game theory can be reformulated into a discipline called quantum game theory. Uh, which takes into account uh, some of the counterintuitive rules of quantum theory. So this is mostly theoretical at the moment, but there is uh, some researchers have translated one game into a quantum version of it. And basically it means that actions are replaced by a complex superposition of, of, of two different actions and, and gets in the concept of quantum entanglement. Uh, which makes the whole game very interesting. And, and this reformulation of poker has versions where how you bet, you can both bet and not bet at the same time in various quantities, and how you bet determines how other people can bet. And it's all a bit complicated, but I think it's well worth a read because it goes through these, these areas of quantum computing and game theory uh, in quite an interesting way. My notes say it's worth reading, I think, though like all things quantum, it is strange. <laughs> yeah, it has something to do with in quantum computing. Well, there's this interesting bit about... Does it oh, it's have anything here, to do with randomness? 
Um, it had, well, I don't know. It has to do with, you know, not being observed until you're observed. So, for example, um, in computers, you store data as either ones or zeros. But it says here, owing to quantum weirdness, uh, a quantum bit or qubit can be a superposition of both ones and zeros at the same time, yeah. which means that a single byte made up of a string of eight bits can store, represent any number up to 256, which is a quantum byte. Oh, sorry, a quantum byte made of eight qubits can store and process 256 different numbers all at once, which is not leads to an enormous hike in processing speed and computational power. So the scientist, physicist David Mayer in 1999 realised when everyone has a quantum computer on their desk, hooked up to one another by quantum communication channels, uh, then any kind of competitive pursuit conducted over this network is going to obey quantum rules. And that's where quantum game theory comes in. You need more than just quantum computers, though. Quantum games should be thought of as games with quantum communication between players and the referee, rather than classical communication. And Steve Blair considers the impact on online poker where the referee is a computer program that deals the cards, mediates the player's actions, and splits back the results. Um, I've only got one more, maybe. Good. I've got one more, but it's a bit flaky. There's a film that can, that has to do with maths, tendentially. The story says... Is it can the Spanish one? Uh, uh, no. Uh, Mars Room. No. Uh. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> no, this is a piece in The Guardian called Can Film Festival Falls in Love with Maths, and is about... Greek mathematics. Rachel Weiss stars as a 4th century mathematician and astronomer, Hypatia, who was said to have edited the works of Apollonius and Defantes on geometry and arithmetic. Anyway, it's said to be delighting audiences at the Cannes Film Festival. Okay. So, um, I have an article from the Times which said that the Met Office recently unveiled a new supercomputer. The £33 million IBM computer is more powerful than 100,000 standard PCs combined, which makes it one of the world's top 20 most powerful computers. It can perform 125 trillion calculations per second and occupies two halls, each the size of a football pitch. Now, the Met Office uses mathematical models to predict the weather, and the new computers should allow them to run more complex numerical models and produce even more accurate solutions. In fact, the Met Office said that the computer will be able to provide forecasts accurate to 2.25 square kilometres. Steve Foreman, the Met Office's chief technology officer, said, This computer will allow us to make the most accurate weather forecasts we have ever produced. Obviously, we can never predict the weather 100% accurately, but this will help considerably. So a couple of little things to mention at the end. Um, I always mention Marcus de Soto's sexy maths column in the Times, and recent ones were on uh, evaluating football as geometry in motion, and one on Muslim symmetry, both of which look quite interesting. I should say as well, this time of year is uh, exam season, and a, a search on Twitter for maths reveals most Twitterers are very concerned with exams at the moment, and not very infatuated with mathematics at the moment, <laughs> as they have to do the, the exams in it. So uh, I suppose good luck to everyone who has exams. Right, I hope you enjoyed listening to that. You can find links to all the stories we talked about, and find out more about the podcast, download other episodes, and become a fan of the Facebook page at www.travelsinamathematicalworld.co.uk. And you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash peterrowlett. That's R-O-W-L-E-T.
double T. Alright, thank you for listening.